Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Battier. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. I'm here today with John Jeffers, co-founder and chief marketing officer of Revolution Turbine Technologies. RTT has developed a micro-expansion turbine system designed to generate green power through the recovery of excess pressure release. That's a lot of big words in there. So let's get to John and have him walk us through what this micro-scale system is and then talk about how big the possibilities are. John, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would, please share with me and the audience your background and a quick introduction to Revolution Turbine Technologies. Yeah, thanks, Joe. Uh, It's great to be here. First, a little bit about me. Uh, I started life as a geologist. I actually started life as a kid, but uh, as I went on through high school and college, I developed an interest in geology. And after earning a master's degree in the 1980s, launched a a long and diverse career in the in the uh, oil and gas industry, spanning exploration, development, technology, and leadership across three decades, three different companies, and and five continents. And as my career evolved, I found myself frequently in two complementary roles at the same time: uh, technical and operations leadership, but also at the same time some role in leading technology and innovation efforts. In other words finding or developing new things to help make our businesses better, whether that's more efficient, more profitable, bigger, uh, more sustainable. So when I left my last corporate role in 2020, uh, I wanted to focus really specifically on that innovation element and and applying it to meet energy and energy transition challenges facing the world. And that's how I first got connected with uh, Revolution Turbines. Uh, I met Chris Bean, uh, the original founder, through my involvement as a mentor in the Global Energy Mentors Program here in Houston. And Chris had recently sold his prior business to focus full-time on RTT. And he asked me to join his board of advisors, promising me that it would be a commitment of eight or 10 hours a month. Uh, A little while later, when it became more like eight or 10 hours a day, I was brought in as a co-founder. And here we are today. To, so to state it very simply, what, what we do at Revolution Turbine Technologies, we deliver zero emission off-grid electricity to gas production facilities and pipelines by converting the excess pressure, excess gas pressure that's already in their systems to on-demand electric power. Thank you for that introduction. I will say I do believe all of us geologists are born as geologists. We all just have to find our own way there. 
And so I totally understand. I'm sure I ate plenty of dirt as a child and was far too interested in the landscaping rocks that we had at home. And naturally that turned into a geology career, as I'm sure your story is probably similar, but much more eloquent. So thank you for your introduction. And I understand a little bit more now what RTT does. You're essentially installing turbines into pipelines to to try and dumb it down for myself. Now, what I'm not fully getting is how exactly is there the wasted energy in that? I guess what steps are are there that we haven't explained? Sure. So yeah, let me step back a little bit and 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 put some context to it. I mean, if you think about the whole gas production transportation delivery system. In general, gas is produced uh, out of high to medium pressure reservoirs in the ground. It flows to the surface. It passes through a number of different kinds of facilities for processing, pre-processing. And then it eventually enters a a high pressure transmission line that takes the gas from where it's produced uh, to where it's consumed. And in the uh, you know at the production side, the pressures may be thousands of, of, of pounds per square inch. Uh, in the transmission system, it's generally compressed and regulated to pressures in the thousand to twelve hundred to thirteen hundred psi range. But the end user consumes it at a very very low pressure, uh, and 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 that's for both for practical reasons and for safety. So you know the gas that starts out somewhere st- starts its journey in a in a hydrocarbon reservoir. Um, may come to the surface at a wellhead pressure of two or three or five or 10,000 PSI. Uh, it'll be processed and then placed into a, a, a gathering and transmission system, and it'll move from, you know, Texas to, to, to Florida at temperature or pressures of, of over 1,000 PSI. When when it comes to your, your, your home, uh, you're consuming it at about one pound per square inch. Um, and the interesting thing about all of this is we put a lot of energy, we, we first take a lot of energy out of it at the well site to get it down to a, a pressure where we can process it. We then add pressure back in with compressors uh, to fill the pipeline and move it. And then we take it back out again at the uh, uh, as, clear, as we approach the end use whenever and, and the distribution there is networks. a change uh, in pressure, and whether it's from pressure the wellhead into the pipeline, taken transporting using, the gas. Uh, Across the country, or whether it's from the, the pipeline into none your individual house, and your house's natural pressure. gas, so in that sense, there's uh, this pressure change. Pressure is, and is every time we have that wasted. pressure change, there's energy there um, and, that you know, is it's, either uh, being. Yeah, that, that pressure so, so is being out there let go and essentially lost. So. That's the kind of opportunity we're talking about here. I I guess I'm curious, how much pressure and pressure losses are there kind of in the U.S.? Uh, great question, Joe. So, I mean, if you look at globally, and, and honestly, uh, let, let, let me speak globally, uh, there's about 4 trillion cubic meters or 140 or so trillion cubic feet of natural gas consumed every year. And the vast, vast majority of it is transported through uh, pipeline systems uh, through part of its life and then goes through this pressure reduction process uh, uh, closer to the end user. 
we've done some back of the envelope uh, calculations uh, that that based on some work that was done uh, by by some academic institutions that if you were to capture not all of this wasted pressure energy but the amount that's reasonably and economically uh, recoverable uh, globally we could generate about 190 terawatt hours of electricity uh, per year. Uh, and, and to put that 190 terawatt hours in perspective, that's about the same amount of electricity that's generated by the Three Gorges Dam in China, which is the largest uh, power generation facility in the world of any kind. Uh, so uh, very, very big number. Um, and, and when you look at what the uh, greenhouse emission reduction uh, potential is of generating that much zero emission power, uh, which uh, pressure recovery would be. Uh, it, it's about 90 million tons of CO2 annual opportunity. Now, you asked specifically about the U.S., and I don't have those numbers handy, but I would, I, I would guess that the U.S. is probably a quarter to a third of that uh, that number because we are one of the largest natural gas consumers in the world, uh, and, and we also have far and away the largest built-out uh, pipeline infrastructure in the world. So, um, you know, uh, 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 approaching uh, probably 50 terawatt hours of, of electric potential. That is a very large potential there. And I I like the worldwide perspective because that shows us just just how much natural gas is used worldwide. And I think it gives us that big scale idea of how you could actually look at decarbonizing through a process like this. Now, one question I do have, would this be considered baseload energy? That being something that is always on generating power on a 24-7, 365 kind of time frame? Yeah, good question, Joe. So it's it, it, yes and no. I mean, so so the natural gas system is flowing 24-7, 365. So, so there is always energy available to be generated in this way. So from that perspective, uh, yeah, it, it, it looks more like a baseload energy source with with the caveat that uh, the flow of gas through pipeline systems isn't constant, it 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 varies with seasons and it varies with time with time of day. So I, I I guess the answer is it's it's certainly not intermittent in the same way that uh, wind or, or or solar generated electricity would be, uh, but it's also not purely constant the same way, you know, an operating coal-fired plant would be delivering X amount of steam and X amount of electricity day in and day out every day of the year. So it, it, it'll, it'll vary seasonally and it'll, and it'll vary with time of day depending on, on flow through pipelines. Okay. That's helpful to understand, to see and understand how something like this can fit into the larger scale energy mix. The the next question I had was, I guess, why am I just now hearing about this kind of technology? Well, Joe, I don't know why you're just hearing about it, but <laughs> uh, but but seriously, uh, you know, the technology itself uh, has been around uh, for a long, long time. Uh, you know, turbo expanders and other devices like this uh, have been used 
in process plants and things like that for, for, for energy recovery. There have been a few deployments at utility scale uh, around the globe, but until recently, it, it, it perhaps hasn't been a, uh, an enormous priority. And I think there's a couple of reasons why, why the priority for doing things like that, this is, is increasing. I mean, the first is sort of the whole, uh, you know, theme of this, of this webcast, this podcast, that, you know, the world is thinking more and more uh, about, you know, how do we reduce carbon footprint of, of our energy system? So opportunities to generate uh, zero emission power are uh, from wasted energy and whether it's wasted pressure, waste heat, other things uh, is, is certainly uh, becoming increasingly front of mind for people. Um, and and a- again, stepping back a little bit to put wasted energy and lost energy in, in global context, only about a third of the primary energy that's ever consumed, so a third of the, ener- the potential energy output of fossil fuels, of oil and gas, of, of hydroelectric, o- only about a third on average actually ends up doing useful, productive work at, at the end of the mm-hmm. whole um, energy life cycle. And about two-thirds of it is lost or wasted along the way. So any opportunity today to recover some of that uh, wasted energy means that we can use less primary energy and get the same uh, get the same output. Um, so things like what we're doing with with waste pressure, uh, what other companies are doing with with waste heat recovery. Uh, you know, yes, we're building it largely on top of existing uh, fossil fuel systems, so it's not a direct path to all the way to net zero. But what it is is technology that's available today that can get us to, let's say, net a whole lot less, a whole lot sooner. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons that it's uh, coming back in, in into focus. Um, the other reason is the economics. I mean, as as fuel costs are going up and as uncertainty in fuel costs are going up, uh, you know, any any source of of power generation that doesn't require fuel. In other words, you make the capital investment in the equipment, uh, and then you're flowing gas through it onto an end user, and and, and still selling that gas and consuming it uh, somewhere else means you have no fuel cost. And and you know we've all seen what's happened to natural gas prices here in the United States. You know, multiply that by I don't know what six or ten uh, in Europe, and then the cloud of uncertainty yeah. over where that's going to be in the future. So where in the past. Uh, you know, installing a, a waste energy recovery system might have been one of those things that was just one of many things that somebody could do with their, uh, you know, scarce capital resources. It's moved up the stack in terms of, of priority for mm-hmm. for people. Uh, so, uh, you know, yes, you haven't been hearing a lot about this until recently. I think you're going to be hearing a lot more about it. And, you know, for instance, our company is... Uh, based out of Greentown Labs in, in Houston. And there are three other companies engaged in, in you know, analogous work uh, with pressure recovery and waste heat recovery uh, projects, probably actually more of that when you add in some of the other technology companies. So uh, it's becoming a thing, and I think it's becoming, a, you know, an increasingly important thing. Yep, absolutely. And I think that's that makes sense and helps 
clarify and and explain why why there are these technologies that in some regards are decades old and there are they are built on very fundamental physics but ultimately they they are now coming to the limelight because of the all of the the existing say the the IRA and the Infra- inflation reduction act and the emphasis on energy prices and as you pointed out the the fluctuations of anything that requires a fuel that ultimately adds in this this emphasis of you don't really know how much that energy is going to cost. Now, you did say utility scale in there. So I think megawatts when I hear utility. What size of this large market, this 190 trillion, or terawatt hour market, what kind of size projects are there? Yeah, so there are, you know, there are all kinds of sizes of projects in general. I would say that, you know, what we're aware of that that, that other other people are working on now are largely, you know, projects probably the smallest size of half a megawatt up to maybe five or ten megawatts in both pressure, waste pressure recovery and waste heat recovery. And as you can imagine, those are those are fairly large projects, fairly capital intensive. Uh, you know, that may cost tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to implement. Uh, so that the the folks that are focusing on those kind of projects are, are, are largely, you know, combination of technical and, and business innovation and trying to, really the, the challenge for them is to tackle the adoption hurdles of, of their customers who, you know, obviously have many demands on their capital budgets. Uh, and, and so give a quick plug to a, f- a few other companies that are that are out in the space uh there's a company called pressure corp which is doing you know from a thermodynamic standpoint the same thing we're doing doing it on the megawatt scale and providing a fully financed uh turnkey project solution uh to their customers and then there are a couple that are doing similar things on the waste heat side uh canon energy which is another that's k-a-n-i-n energy which is another greentown member company uh and terrapin energy out of out of uh uh, canada that's doing similar things those folks are focusing on megawatts those folks are focusing on generating power basically uh to put to the power grid and distribute as as electricity uh is is distributed um to you know industrial and residential commercial users uh we're in a different place uh we're looking at the 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 very small end of of that scale where uh you know our our turbines generate in the in the kilowatts uh ranges from one kilowatt up to uh today we can probably probably got line of sight on 20 but but with you know names of growing to about about uh, 50 kilowatts specifically to meet the needs of of the uh, the customers that we're serving at the time and place where where we're generating the power um, so what we've done basically is 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 worked at the intersection where where two problems uh, meet an opportunity and then and the two problems that a number of the operators that we're dealing with face is they have a need for remote power uh, particularly in areas that have no grid connection and they're pursuing carbon footprint reduction uh, across their portfolios, which means uh, 
burning some of their precious product to generate electricity using a, you know, a reciprocating engine generator or thermoelectric or something like that uh, on site, while it's possible, uh, isn't terribly desirable. So we're matching, and, and then they've got increased need for uh, electricity as they, you know, introduce, uh, you know, additional automation systems, as they want to repower their methane bleeding pneumatic devices with compressed air power or, or electrified controls. Uh, so we take these these kind of these two problems, the need for power and, and the desire or need for carbon footprint reduction, and match them to the opportunity, which is, hey, guess what? They've already got excess pressure energy in, in these very same systems. So we, what we simply do is bring those together on the sort of 1 to 20 kilowatt scale to use convert the kinetic energy they already have in pressure in their systems uh, to electrical energy that they can then use to basically self-generate power. I totally get that and hear what you're saying as far as the the value add there and the clear market potential as far as generating on-site remote power and, of course, the whole idea of using that wasted wasted pressure and wasted energy. Now, a lot of the time I will be asked the same question about, about geothermal because a lot of the ideas about repurposing geothermal wells is also in this kind of kilowatt scale upwards of maybe 100 to 200 kilowatts, but still kind of, it seems like small potatoes, if you will. So, just in case for anybody who doesn't really understand, I mean, we have the grid reliability, the resiliency, the the off power generation. When you're talking about one to 20 or 50 kilowatts, what does that actually do for one of these remote operations? Like what is the, what is the real, how much power does that actually provide in terms of like the, the big picture of what that, system needs sure so what we can do what our what our power provides is you know sufficient to power uh SCADA systems control systems uh valves regulators uh with the right technology you know lighting and security systems uh we can power small uh electric equipment so we can power uh, instrument air compressors, for instance, to to provide uh, instrument air to power pneumatic devices, so that um, the operators don't need to power those with with methane and then bleed the methane to the atmosphere. We can use use that same methane pressure to drive our turbine, compress air, and bleed air to the atmosphere. Most people are okay with with uh, bleeding air to the atmosphere. Uh, so so we can do things like that. Uh, what we can't do uh, is power, you know, the large compressors that are that are used to, uh, uh, you know, compress gas into high pressures at pipelines and things like that. So we can do a lot of what's pretty pretty much everything that's necessary on a, on a remote gas well location, assuming they have you know a reasonable amount of flowing pressure uh, in their gas wells. Same thing, you know, way on the other end of the spectrum uh, in the natural gas distribution networks. Uh, we've been in discussions with several of these who are interested in 
you know, implementing uh, more sophisticated monitoring control systems farther and farther out in their networks. And certainly the, the, the energy balance works there too, to, to use the amount of flow and pressure drop they have across, uh, they call them district governors and district regulators and things like that in their networks, to use that excess power uh, to power the, uh, um, to generate electricity, to power sensors and, and, and valves. Uh, in, in Europe now, since the price of natural gas has gone up uh, uh, tremendously, uh, they've had a lot greater problem with, with uh, theft out of their system. So, you know, mm-hmm. wanting to do more uh, real-time monitoring of, of pressures and operating conditions mm-hmm. farther and farther out in their networks to detect these, both from a loss prevention standpoint, but also from a safety standpoint. So, uh yeah, and, and of course, when you get out into smaller and smaller installations, if you think what the effort would be to try to grid connect each one of those uh, to provide electricity or to power them with batteries that would have to be changed on some kind of a, a regular uh, schedule, uh, a technology like ours becomes very, uh, very attractive. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that that point needs to be emphasized that there's all of those subsidiary uh, energy uses on these remote well pads and and all of those subsidiary energy uses are necessary and I think the the example you pointed out now with the theft that is occurring on pipelines in Europe because of the natural gas prices that's the most obvious answer like this is this is why it's important but you have similar stuff and just kind of you have same unfortunate events that occur on remote well pad sites as well that that need to be monitored and need to be need to be watched out for so it's it makes so much sense to instead of burning your product and instead of trying to bring these transmission lines out to these remote sites why not use the power that you are also producing that being that that excess pressure and that mechanical power that's coming from that well. Yeah, and we think it's just a, you know, a, a, a really simple, elegant solution as well. I mean, our, our, if you saw one of our devices, it's extremely simple. It's essentially got one moving part. It's got a, 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 a turbine rotor with it with a generator uh, sort of in the, in the hub of the, of the turbine. So it's one, one rotating part on supported by two bearings and nothing's burned in it. So you don't get combustion deposits or fouling or anything like that. Uh, so an extremely long maintenance cycle, We're, we uh, recommend an annual inspection, but, but uh, likely will run, you know, four or five years before it really requires any significant uh, service, you know, re- replacement of, of, of uh, wear parts. So it, 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 it very low touch, uh, low emissions, highly reliable. Uh, it, it's sort of a headache eliminator, if you will, for for a lot of these remote locations. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, I, I'm glad you asked about the, you know, what is this power? You know, what, what kind of power can you deliver? Because our whole approach to this has not been, you know, how much power can be harvested from pressure at these locations, which is what the utility scale people are doing. They want to, you know, they need to harvest as much as they can uh, and, and deliver it to the grid. We're really looking at it for the customer's perspective and how much, how much does the customer need? And that, and, and, and then we'll tailor our solution to that. Um, 
and I'm, I'm sure it's a lot like what you see in the geothermal industry too. When you look at distributed geothermal, it's more about what's needed locally in a specific installation, and that's the really the the, the value driver, the value case for distributed power is not how big a system can I put in, how much can I generate. It's how much I how much do I need, and what's the simplest way to to meet that need. Mm-hmm. Yep. So with winter coming up. I'm sure that there are more discussions of the weather. And actually right now in Dallas, there's a tornado watch. So luckily I'm recording in my recording studio, that being the closet. So I'm in a safe spot. But all of that being said, with winter coming up, there I'm sure going to be references to Winter Storm Yuri. We've been talking about winter in Europe and how difficult that's going to be. I think what what I'm curious about is something like these micro turbines and this amount of power that's being generated through RTT. How does that help the next winter storm? How is that going to make the energy grid more resilient? Is it going to make the energy grid more resilient? Yeah, Joe, well- Really, the probably probably the biggest thing that our turbine can do for whether it's the utility networks, the production side, or, or, or everything in between, is we can provide the power that those networks need to operate their monitoring and control systems independent of the power grid. So when the electric power grid goes down, they don't care, right? Uh, I, m- I mentioned earlier that we've been talking with it with a European power grid. They they had an instance uh, several years ago with one of these large storms that blew across the Atlantic, took down the uh, the power lines or took down the electric power grid. And although they had backup power for their uh, natural gas network, uh, it was diesel fired generators, and I don't know if it was because of the cold weather or what, uh, but the diesel the backup diesel generators failed as well. So they had no electric power to control their systems and they had to take large parts of the gas network down uh, because of that. Uh, So, you know, the ability to continuously generate uh, the power that's needed for key operational systems and to do it from just the normal operations of the pipeline uh, is is a huge bonus and and just can't help but add to the reliability and resilience of, of gas delivery. I wish we could generate enough to also, uh, you know, mitigate the problems with the with the uh, electric grid itself. But but that energy balance just doesn't work. Uh, if you want to generate a lot of electricity from gas, uh, y- you do have to burn it. Uh, but at least that that kind of um, compounding failure, where a failure in the electric network. Um, causes a failure in the gas network, then the gas can't be delivered uh, to the power stations to get the electricity going back again. You know, we would certainly play play a a significant part in in reducing that vulnerability. Yeah, I I guess I didn't realize that that was part of the main issue there is that that natural gas stopped being delivered because monitoring of the pipeline was out because of the electricity grid being out. Yeah, no, I don't think that was. And to be clear, that that I was referring to a case in Europe. I, th- I think in in uh, you know in Texas uh, in in the big freeze, the the bigger issue was the electric power 
uh, failing and, you know, a significant portion of the gas, the natural gas compression in, in Texas is now electric rather than, than gas fired. Uh, so there was a reduction in the amount of uh, electric fired, electric powered compression available to move gas through the pipelines. And then at the same time, there were issues way back at the wellhead uh, with uh, systems that were not uh, not sufficiently weatherproofed. Uh, so there was, you know, freezing up of, of, of wellheads, um, which also then restricted the flow of gas. So it was a, sort of a whole, you know, cascading set of, of failures. But that interdependence between gas and electricity, gas is fuel for the electricity, electricity is power to, uh, grid electricity is power to operate critical systems in natural gas, whether it's control systems, most of which I, I believe had sufficient backup power or, you know, the bigger equipment, the compressors and things that didn't. Um, but yeah, I think as we look through energy transition, as we look through evolving, you know, systems from where they are today to where they need to be in the future, we've got to pay attention to those, uh, to, to the risk side of it as well, not not just the decarbonization side, but also, you know, what what systemic risks might we actually be amplifying as, as we uh, move from one system to another. And what we're hoping to do with our system is not amplify those systemic risks, but but reduce them. Yep. Yeah. And I guess that, that makes sense from that standpoint of once you can can dissociate almost the the power to monitor and maintain the the pipeline system whether that is natural gas or whether that's hydrogen or whether that's a thermal energy network sending water to be heated or cooled as long as that is not relying on a a larger system it can have its own self-contained power almost then that would be that would be building resiliency into the greater, larger, big E energy system, as opposed to just the electric grid. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, you can still interconnect those systems so that they can back each other up when they're capable of it, but it's nice yep. to be able to have them uh, basically be able to operate independently as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So where is RTT kind of in the... In the um, commercialization space, I know Greentown Labs is is a startup cohort community. Where are y'all in terms of of commerciality? And I guess what is next for RTT? Yeah, Joe. So um, you know, RTT has been around for a few years. We really got seriously focused in 2020 on on moving quickly towards commercialization. Uh, prior to that, it, you know, it, it was a, a side business. We had one uh, industry partner that was funding uh, a large amount of our development to that point. Today, we, you know, we've we've built and tested uh, full-scale prototypes under controlled conditions. Uh, we're moving towards uh, initial field pilots in 2023. We're still looking for exactly the right places to do those. So we're in discussion with a number of. Uh, upstream and midstream operators. So taking our system from lab, if you will, or shop uh, to field in, in 2023 um, and and then commercial deployment uh, and, and scale up of our business, you know, starting towards the end of next year and, and ramping into 2024. Um, 
concurrent with that, we are fundraising. So if there are folks in there interesting in uh, investing in RTT, we're certainly uh, happy to have those discussions. Uh, and then, you know, we're looking beyond that as well. At, you know, what what's, what are the next things in, in the product line need to look like? We've got a, a, a one-size-fits-all today that we know doesn't really fit all. Uh, so we're looking at, at uh, opportunities for larger and smaller units, higher cost and, and on some of the larger ones, but also looking at some scaled down uh, smaller units that would operate, gener- be able to generate electricity at lower flow rates and, and lower pressures and, and with a significantly lower system cost uh, to meet some of the emerging applications that we're seeing. So we've kind of got, you know, a, a line towards commercialization on our existing one to two kilowatt single turbine uh and then we're working on on uh you know the next big thing or which may actually turn out to be the next small thing to uh to meet uh other uh, other needs that are emerging uh you know we're learning a lot from every conversation we have with a potential customer uh just you know although we've been at this for several years it seems like every day uh you know we, we get a new, you know, a, a new potential application that, you know, helps us adapt, adjust our thinking a little bit. Uh, so really exciting times for us. We're just seeing uh, lots of very, very interesting potential opportunities. We've got to spend, you know, a little bit of time to, to, to be sure they're real. Uh, but, you know, more than half of our attention today is devoted towards uh, securing, moving towards uh, field pilots uh, for next year so that we can, you know the things that we've already proven in controlled conditions. We can we can field test and and be sure they work as we think they should work um, in the real world. Mm-hmm. Yep, very cool, very exciting news. And with that, I think that's a good transition point to get into the final questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. That first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? <laughs> You're, 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 Joe, you're presupposing that, that startup founders have time to read books, but, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I do occasionally. Uh, you know, one, one of the ones I read, I think, just you know, in, in the past few months that I just thought was fantastic was uh, Eric Larson's book, The Splendid and the Vile, which is the story of uh, Winston Churchill from uh, through the Battle of Britain, basically. I think it's a, it's a one-year snapshot in, in 1940 of what Britain was going through. Uh, after they evacuated Dunkirk and, you know, when they were faced with the German blitz and, and, uh, and understanding what kind of character and what, you know, what kind of fortitude it took to lead a country through what appeared to be a hopeless situation. So that's the one I was going to talk about when, when you asked me that question. And then I was looking at my bookshelf and I saw another one that, is very much the same story, but maybe much more tangible for for um, energy people. And it's a book called The Offshore Imperative that was published probably 10 or 15 years ago. And it's the story of, uh, of Shell Oil back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, uh, shifting from being largely land-based uh, oil and gas developer to deeper and deeper and deeper offshore energy and and the reason they they did that was basically after world war ii most of the assets they had on shore were expropriated uh by host countries they had and they didn't have enough money to afford 
to compete in the growing uh, onshore regions of the world. So they took on the challenge to say, well, we don't know how we're going to do it. Uh, we, we have no idea how we're going to uh, recover these resources that are out in deeper and deeper offshore waters. Uh, but we're going to explore and we're going to pursue those with the confidence that we will build the solutions. We will develop the technologies that will allow us to produce those. So I think it's a lot like that story of the splendid and the vile. It's we're faced with this situation that looks maybe not hopeless, but but uh, nearly impossible. Uh, and we're going to figure out a way to, to get it done. And, and, and I think that's in a lot of ways what we're facing with the energy transition. There are things that we just all know uh, or believe need to happen. We can set targets of what the results should look like when those do happen. We just don't quite know how we're going to get there. So, uh, you know, reading the splendid and the vile and then seeing that other, uh, the offshore imperative on my shelf reminded me kind of of how those, those two things tie together and then, you know, tie back to what a number of us in the energy transition world are, are trying to solve. Those both sound like great recommendations. And I think it, it's always interesting to hear the the history book recommendations and especially the historical energy industry recommendations like the offshore imperative. That's uh, very exciting. I I was I went to OTC, the Offshore Technology Conference for the first time last year and thinking about not being offshore at all for energy production and then walking the floor at the OTC Expo and seeing some of the things that that these operators or these service companies have that they offer and just how technologically advanced offshore energy production is it just is mind-blowing and and is it really gives you a sense of just how innovative and ingenious people are out there that when we do have a problem we can figure out how to solve it we just need that that fortitude and that almost knowing what the consequences will be if we don't solve that problem so i'm excited to read those books (laughs) the the next question is when will we be net zero as a society yikes Uh, (laughs) yeah so I mean, I, I consider, and you can probably tell this, I consider myself to be uh, optimistic, but an optimistic realist. And, and I just think, you know, net zero is a great aspiration. It's going to drive a lot of positive change in the world, um, you know, as well as bringing much higher consciousness of how we treat the Earth's resources. Um but the, the, the magnitude of the challenge is incredible, and unfortunately, in a lot of ways, you know, for much of the world, it's just one of the challenges and one of the priorities they're facing. I mean, think about uh, a country that that uh, you know doesn't know how to feed its people properly. You know, can't can't feed all its people today, or doesn't even have enough energy to provide electric light to read by night, or you know, doesn't have clean water. Doesn't you know, people don't enjoy personal security or shelter. So. You know, it, it is incredibly challenging, and I think when we look at it from the perspective of the developed world, and and particularly the resource poor developed world, I mean, and by that I mean the you know the countries that aren't large producers of of coal or or or, or uh, oil or gas. You know, it's pretty easy if you're a wealthy nation to say, 
ah, we'll be there by 2050. Um, and, and likewise with organizations, with, with corporates that are taking on net zero commitments. Uh, I, I believe that many, many companies, countries, organizations are going to meet their individual targets that they've set out for, for most of them are sort of 2050, 2060. But the flip side of that is not everybody's going to. And, and you know, I know this from my days of, of working in an oil and gas service organization where every business unit has a sales target. And if you added up all those sales targets uh, and, and tried to set that as your corporate sales target, you'd never meet it because, yeah, 80% of them would meet their targets, but 20% wouldn't. Um, and, and I think we're probably looking at something like that with, with the net zero targets. Um, I think, you know, Unfortunately, too, there are probably more reasons that some people will fall short of their targets than there are reasons that some will actually achieve beyond their targets and make up for the ones that fall short. Um, so I, 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 don't, I don't think it's going to be 2050. Uh, I think as we approach 2050, uh, we'll probably reevaluate and look at what we've learned over the, you know, the 25 years or so from now till then and see what's working and what's not reevaluate whether net zero is the right target or, or, or something else is. Um, but I do think that we'll, we'll get to a good place, you know, within 10 or 15 or 20 years of 2050. Um, and, I hope we do that by actually really changing the way the world works and the way energy systems work uh, to be more robust, resilient, sustainable, and so on. I hope we don't do it by coming up with some clever accounting tricks to make it look like we've uh, achieved net zero when, when, when in reality we haven't. And as, as I was, you know, okay, I, I know you, you fed me this question ahead of time, so I'd have a little bit of time to think about it, and I appreciate that. I started wondering and couldn't find out, actually, when was the last time that mankind really was net zero on, on carbon, uh, I, I suspect you probably have to go back, you know, before the use of firewood as a large fuel in a growing Europe where you deforested, you know, large part of an, of an entire continent, uh, to provide firewood. We were obviously, you know, taking, taking trees out of the system faster than they were being replaced. So, so, so I really wonder, you know, I know we have the global CO2 emissions, the, the historical fossil record of, of atmospheric CO2, but that aside, when was the last time that humanity was net zero and what does it really look like to get, to, to get all the way there? So uh, sh short answer, I don't think it's 2050. Uh, it might be 2070, 2075, 2080, uh, but I think a lot of that remains to be seen depending on, you know, what we learn in the process of trying to get there and what the world looks like, you know, 20, 25, 30 years mm -hmm. from now. Yep. Yeah, and I, I definitely agree that the idea of net zero, I think the goal of net zero is good. And what what we're trying to aspire to is a livable climate where everybody can prosper and not not have a a i guess a a volatile dangerous world to live in 
And I know there are there are other environmental ideas and different things about endangered species and all of these other factors. But I think that if you boil it down to we want a climate that we can live in, I think that is a good idea. And then trying to get to that point of what is that and how do we actually do that? Is that net zero or is that something else or or what what is that that sweet spot for the human race? I think that's a it is a very big question. And I think you started to allude to that and very fun to to think about as long as it is fun to think about. If as long as it doesn't turn into an argument, no, right? But, but, but the other thing, Joe, is a lot of people are going to have to radically change the way they live, right? The, the, the way their day-to-day lives are going to have to change radically. And I don't mean it's going from a, you know, a 400 horsepower uh, diesel pickup truck to a 670 horsepower electric pickup truck. I mean, people's <laughs> lives are going to be different. And a lot of the, you know, uh, I suspect, although, you know, I, I am... I am an optimist. Uh, we're just going to get more mindful of how much we're consuming uh, of things and 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 everything, whether it's energy, whether it's stuff, materials, whatever. Uh, you know, the population of the world is still growing. It's going to be growing for a while. There's a large portion of the population that's vastly underserved in terms of just basic material needs. So I think you know the, the developed world is going to have to get on board, and and people are going to have to be willing to make real sacrifices and and you know i'd like to say i see that happening but i i can't really say i do uh so yeah i i I think until those kinds of human you know individual human behaviors start changing and attitudes start changing radically to where net zero isn't something somebody else needs to do or somebody else needs to work towards it's something i need to work towards just like I digress here, but on you know in in, in the oil and gas world, uh, safety was always a big priority. But it didn't. We we weren't successful in you know making significant improvements in safety until each and every worker, each and every person, took personal responsibility for safety, rather than having some ethereal safety department out somewhere that made rules that were supposed to keep us all safe. So I, I think this is very much the same. If if the world wants to be more environmentally responsible you, you, you can't push that off on somebody else to do you got to say what am i personally going to do what's my personal commitment and 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 then actually do it yeah i i definitely hear you and agree it is going to be it is going to require i think the key word there is radical change in order to really get there and where we are right now is how can we make a change that is comfortable? And what most people are still putting the blinders onto is saying, I don't want, I don't want to make a radical change. I want a comfortable change. And as long as net zero means I still get to be comfortable, then let's figure out how to do it. But I, I completely agree. That's, that's the thing that we aren't talking about enough is what is, what is that radical change that we all need to accept and go towards? And until we start accepting that aspect of it, I think net zero is a, it is a, it's a moving goalpost that is going to continue to move until, 
until we say, okay, here's, here's the line and we're not going to cross it anymore. And now let's move forward. So, yeah. And when you, honestly, when you look at what we're doing at, at revolution turbines, I'll bring, bring it back to us a little bit. I think that's what <laughs> a lot of people you know need, need to be thinking about is okay. Yeah. Somewhere way out there in the future, those other people are going to do these things and, and, and the problem's mm-hmm. going to be solved. But what, what things can we do today that will help, you know, that, that'll, that'll make a difference. They may be making small differences. They may be making medium-sized differences. Some of them may make large differences. They may not be the final answer to get us to net zero or whatever that desired outcome is, but they can get us a lot closer to it a lot faster because we're working with systems that are already in place. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Well, the final question of the final questions is now you get to ask me a question. Boy, I'm, I'm you know, now that we went off on that last uh, theme, I think I'm going to ask you to almost maybe, maybe repeat uh, a little bit about what we just talked about, but you know, you're really at, at the tip of the spear of the energy transition with this podcast and then, you know, also with your, your work with, with PetroLearn. But so for, for people out there who are listening, uh, you know, say perhaps a 20-year-old university student, because I happen to know one pretty well, uh, <laughs> on, on an individual personal level, what advice do you have to listeners about how to become engaged in this in this important work for somebody who's you know considering a career choice or considering a career change or wanting to put in some extra time doing something else you know what can people do to become engaged that is a a great question and i think that it ultimately comes down to Finding, I, I hate to be cliche, but finding those passions that you have, if you want to see a, a more sustainable life for yourself, then start riding your bike more. If you live within, so there was a period in my life where anything within a five mile radius, as if I could fit whatever I was getting into a backpack, and it was five miles away, I would ride my bike. And that was a decision I made partially because of the environment and partially because I didn't want to pay for gas. So it was it was part sustainability, but also part frugalness. But that in itself, those little five-mile trips, is ends up being a significant portion of the daily driving that many many urban dwellers do. So for me, that started to build in part of my lifestyle of, okay, if it's something reasonable and I've got the time, I'm either going to walk or I'm going to drive or not drive. I'm going to walk or I'm going to ride my bike. And, and then making those individual steps and then trying to find a way to bring that into your company or bring that into the workplace because ultimately you spend a significant amount of time at the workplace. And that's something that that we've been able to do at PetroLearn. Now we have a personal enrichment day one, one day a month. And the goal of that day is to either personally enrich yourself to grow as a employee or personally enrich yourself to grow as a member of society. And 
with those days, there are some times where I will spend time in nature and go for a hike. While I'm hiking, I will pick up as much trash as I can because I'm out there and I have all day. I don't have anywhere I need to go because I get to do that for work that day. Or there's other times where I will just be going and volunteering to do some something else, some type of environmental remediation. And those are those are things that we started that weren't originally part of PetroLearn, but as we have been growing as a company, we said these things are important and we want to have that that value lived out as a company. And so now we we get that one day a month where we're either reading books or we are out volunteering and bettering society. So I think that is uh, personal examples on how you can make those personal choices to start getting involved and to start seeing that change specifically through through what passions you have. I don't know if that really answers your question, but hopefully it hopefully it's a little bit inspiring for somebody. No, I think that was great, Joe. I think, you know, the the personal stories are what, you know, set examples for for others. So uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, thank you for joining me on the show today. I know we are running a little long. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you would like to say? Yeah, just for for folks listening today, uh, if if you're interested in learning more about what we're doing at Revolution Turbine Technologies, visit our website, uh, www.revolutionturbines.com. Connect with us on LinkedIn. And if you're ever in Houston and want to pop in and see what we're doing and what some of the other companies around us are doing, uh, come on in to to Greentown Labs. Uh, Let us know ahead of time and and we'd love to show you what we're doing. John, thank you for that. And for everybody, I will also have a link in the show notes for RTT. So that way you can find it there. And thank you for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, share with a friend and let me know you're enjoying it by leaving a review. If you want to hear more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link will be in the show notes. If you go fill that out, we can send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.